Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. I'm your host Daniel Oyston and it's great to have you tuned into episode 29 of Inside Sponsorship. Just a quick shout out to Nick Humphreys, Creative Director and Founder at Effective Soccer Training. Nick was introduced to us through a mutual contact and popped into the office for a chat. Nick's doing some great work at Effective Soccer Training and has started listening to the podcast and then sharing it with lots of people he knows in the industry. So thanks for that, Nick. Keep up the good work and we'll speak to you soon. Now, I've been wanting to do a podcast on sponsorship in esports for some time now, and so I was excited to cross paths with our guest for the show, Tomas Ravalid, because I wasn't going to let the opportunity pass to ask him to come on the show. Now, Tomas is the CEO and Director of Brand Partnerships at AEMG and takes us inside the emerging sponsorship industry in esports. But before Tomas joins us, I continued the chat that we started in the last episode with Mark around how you can self-assess the health of your sponsorships and or your commercial program. Here's Mark. Mark Thompson, let's continue your health check. Yes. <laughs> How's your health been in the last couple of weeks since? It's been, it's been really good. I actually did a, a health check, a proper one. Like go to my, the doctor, doctor? No, no, I did one with the... Uh, with, just did it yourself? <laughs> yeah, no, I just did it myself. No, with my private health insurance. No, not my private health insurance. Oh, okay. My income protection, life insurance and mm. stuff, AIA. Pass? Yeah. I'm, you know, oh, it, it told me I was one year older than I am. I'll take that. Very fit for an 80-year-old. Is that what I, it said? I look, I look <laughs> a lot older than my health tells me I am, so I'm good with that. I was talking to somebody at the gym the other day, and I said, I wish, because you know your max heart rate is 220 minus your age. Yeah. I said, geez, I wish it was 220 minus how old you felt, because I reckon it'd only be about 140 then. <laughs> All right, but let's get down to business. This is part two of how to conduct a sponsorship health check. Mm -hmm. And a reminder, if you haven't listened to the previous podcast or read the previous blog, it's all about having a look at four key pillars, return on objectives, investment, return on investment, the relationship elements, which we'll look at this time, as well as looking at the, uh, the internal structural elements that you have to support your program. So if you haven't listened to that podcast or you haven't read that blog, it's probably a good idea to go back and have a look at that before progressing to part two. That's kind of why we numbered them, yep. part one, part two. Um, but let's continue it. What are we going to look at this time around in detail? Yeah, so as you, as you just said there, we're, we're looking at the um, internal so, – you know, these are the probably the less tangible elements of a health check. So the, the return on – But no less important. No, probably more important, but the, um, because there is, there's no hard and fast um, – visual aid to tell you whether you are or aren't meeting those objectives. So yes. um, the return on investment and return on objectives, you can set goals, you can set targets, and there's metrics that you can use to achieve those and see how, you, how you're going. But um, what these two elements are, the relationship pieces and the internal pieces, they actually require a bit of strategy and planning. Mm. So Serious. They are not tangible. All um, right. So the first one, relationships. So, you know, for me, this is arguably the most important part of any sponsorship manager's role. And it's not just about, you know, being mates with your partner, um, with your sponsorship partner. Yep. Um, you know, the ability to establish, maintain and grow positive and trusting relationships. So for me, a good relationship is all about trust and sponsorship. So you, as I said, you might not be the sort of person that you go and have a beer with your sponsor. Um, but I mean, you may, hope you are. Yeah, you'd hope so because that's <laughs> always the, the upside. But 
as long as they professionally trust you, then you'll have a good relationship with them. So what are we going to look at? What are, what are the Because remembering for the listeners, if you haven't gone back and looked at the first blog and the first podcast, we've created five key questions under each of the four criteria, so a total of 20 questions. So we should have five things we want to look at and, and assess under relationships. What's yep. the first one? Well, to, just to, to sort of caveat all these, the, the, the things I'm focusing on are the areas you can control personally yep. within the relationship. So the first one is reporting. And the question you ask yourself do we have the ability to run periodic reports for each relationship? So the reason I see that as being important is that it, it enables you to provide updates um, to assess the utilisation of inventory, plan ahead, but more importantly, to be able to use those reports to have productive and regular discussions with their partners around your happiness. So, you know, that we speak to a lot of people that you know, run an end-of-year report and recap for their partners if that report looks bad because they haven't used, you know, a bunch of their assets or they haven't re- received value or they haven't met their objectives, then, you know, that's going to be a tough conversation. And you've got little chance to actually address anything getting off course. It's already gone too yeah, far. Yeah, the horse has bolted. So, you know, the ability to create periodic reports for your partnership, and they might just be like what we do here at Sponsor, where we run internal audit reports on all of our partnerships to assess who is getting value. So it takes about 20 minutes. Yeah, you can do the same for all your partners periodically just to make sure, even if it's just internally, that you're on the right track. But what it does is it creates content to have a productive and objective conversation with them rather than just that transactional stuff. Very good. Okay, so we've looked at reporting. What's next? So the next one is communication. And, and you know, the question is, do we communicate often enough with our sponsors? Now, the that's going to change sponsor to sponsor, isn't it? It's depending on who they are, um, what they consider to be enough communication and contact, and also how important they are to your organisation. Um, you know, that's a harsh reality, that one, but it's true. And But what this element does is it goes right to the heart of the, of the relationship you have with their sponsor, and you're only going to know what is enough communication if you've had the conversation with them to find out what they consider enough communication. And is it okay to just outwardly ask that question hey do you you know what what do you mary feel is about right once a week once a a month yeah about 12 months ago we wrote a a blog and um sort of an ebook around what to do in your first 30 days or 90 days as a sponsorship manager and one of those tasks is to have open conversations with your partners when you sign them up around what their expectations are and you make notes of that and you recheck them that's pretty simple hmm Yep. Very good. All right. So we we know what we need to communicate, how often we need to communicate. Yep. What's next? Input is the simple heading. And basically the question you ask yourself is, um, are our sponsors receptive to suggestions we make to maximize their sponsorship? Why would that be important? Well, I mean, basically it's an indication to me that they value you mm-hmm. and they trust you. So... Um, if you're seen as a valuable partner to their business, not just a, you know, we're not talking just like a chairman's choice. I'm just going to throw money at the club I love here. This is a, an actual partnership. This is a commercial is, decision. Correct. It's yep. a commercial partnership. And so if you're a valuable partner and they trust you enough, they will actually value your insights and your familiarity. So remember in the last episode um, or last podcast, we, we spoke about um, you being a content expert 
on this on on an expert on the on the audience that you can access. Correct, yep. exactly right. So um, this is really down to that. If they if they see you as that, and then they value your opinion and they trust your opinion, then your relationship's in a good spot there. But if they just say to you, "This is what we're doing," we don't care what you say. We're doing it. It's kind of that's a bit of a red flag for me. Mm. So the, we're looking to see whether they're receptive to having input from us. What about the other way? Yeah, and then collaboration actually is number is the next step. So see how I did that. Yeah, nice work. Um, Smooth nice segue. <laughs> um, so do our sponsors proactively bring ideas to us? So you know that that's sort of a, another key indicator that there's trust. So they come to you with ideas to say, "Hey, we would like to do this. What do you think?" How do we do this? We collaborate together to actually drive a really good activation. And um, I sat on a, a panel at the World Rugby Conference last year, and World Rugby and DHL do this really well together. So DHL actually came with an idea. It wasn't workable. They worked around stuff together, and they came up with a really great activation. So, um, you know, and that's trust. So DHL obviously really trust World Rugby. They've got mutual goals, mutual objectives, and they see each other as valuable partners. Now, the next one I think is very, very insightful. Yeah, awareness. So do we have deeper insights into our sponsor's business than simply the stated objectives and goals? So for me, this is the final test of true trust. Are you are they trusting in you enough to keep you informed of changes, thoughts or happenings within their organisation with enough time to allow you to, to react? So... You know, I personally myself have failed in this area before where we, we had a sponsor come to us and say, we've changed our, our approach, our strategy around sponsorship has changed, you no longer fit into that, so we're leaving. And they were getting value out of us, but their, their, their global head office brought down, brought down a new rule. They've made that decision. Yeah. You've got no opportunity to realign yourself with the new strategy, even if you could. Yeah, that's right. And and we wouldn't have been able to. And so, you know, fair enough. But what would have been nice would have been to at least be aware it was coming and that we had the chance to um, see how we could do that. I had one of our awesome clients say to me in a meeting once uh, just about how they interact with some of their partners. And this example will really drive this home. Rang up to have one of those regular communications and talk about reporting and the person who is their contact said, uh, I'm not sure if you heard, but we just laid off about 200 staff this morning. It's been all over the news, so I haven't got time to talk to you. Yeah. So not necessarily a trusted partner on that front. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> all right, so the five things we're looking for in the relationship key category is the ability to run periodic reports that we're communicating often enough in the ways that the sponsor or partner wants to be communicated with, We've got input into activation. They're bringing ideas to us and we're aware much more broadly than just this commercial agreement. That's right. We're, we're actually involved in each other's businesses. Relationships. Tick. Tick. Next. Internals. So these are the internal elements. You, you wouldn't actually apply these when you're doing a health check across individual partnerships. So just to clarify for the listeners, while this looks at four key areas if you just wanted to pick it up and look at sponsor a we'd only look at return on investment return on objective and the relationship element but if we wanted to look at our our portfolio our program more broadly we look at these internal things we'd extend it to that correct i mean and they all play into the ability for you to keep sponsor a happy you know having good internal structures is going to make that 
so much easier. Yeah. So, and it, this will make more sense as we go through the things that we're going to look at, aren't <clears> we? Yes, exactly. So what, right. what, what, what does internals mean? What broadly, what are we looking at? So basically um, what the internals mean is, is the ability for you guys to manage an effective and always improving sponsorship program. So, um, you know, what are your structures looking like? Uh, what do your processes look like? Um, do you have some key policies? Things like that that are actually going to enable you to get better. So it's not just about maintaining. It's actually you should a good sponsorship organization is always striving for improvement and part of that would be the first point which is growing yeah growing so is our commercial program growing so even if you're just retaining your partners um there should be some form of growth financially contributing to that because you know there's not too many rights holders out there that have an organization whose costs remain static you know we have cpi growth we have other costs, new technology comes in in other areas of the business. Sponsorship is then ex- expected to pick up that bill or contribute to it. Um, you know, all sorts of different elements change and the sponsorship program needs to be growing in line with that at least. My dad's an investor. Mm-hmm. He says you should always invest in alcohol when the uh, economy's not doing well because people drink more because they're depressed. He also told me you should have a diverse portfolio to protect yourself. How does that apply here? Well, I mean, it's exactly the same. It's risk management, right? So diversity um, across industries is one element, and then we'll talk about resilience later. But So having diversity amongst your partners provides protection against uncontrollable downturns inside and outside. So that's internal performance. So if you're a f- sporting team, for example, your team's performing poorly or the public perception of your sport is not great, um, do you have a diverse portfolio of partners which are resilient against that? And to be fair, if you are a sponsorship or commercial manager in a sporting team, mm-hmm. it's only a matter – we know you're not going to win every game, but there's very few clubs like we spoke about with Jonathan in the previous podcast from Cronulla Sharks. Every club has a scandal sooner or later. Correct. And also the, what we're talking about is downturns outside. So let's take a uh, football team in the UK who are owned by a betting agency if for some reason there's a betting scandal or gambling on sport gets banned by the government then sugar taxes is a good example exactly then then that 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 club is at a real risk because they've got a small number of sponsors major reliance on the one industry there's a big risk of of them you know ceasing to exist just from one decision outside of their control so um you know having a bigger more diverse portfolio really helps your risk management. Would it be a fair point to say if, particularly for sports who have you know a, a, a organisation that organises a competition or an association, that if their partners are in certain industries, let's take gambling again as an example, the peak body has gambling partners and money flows through to you that you should look to ensure that you diversify as well away from those partners from the, the head association? Um, yeah, potentially. I'd say so. It's it's um I mean, I mean you're probably gonna take a gambling sponsor on yourself and a you know, an, a technology partner and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, exactly right. But it, I mean it, it it really does depend on your you know, the strategic outlook. But what I'm saying here is, you know, the diversity should be across industry, but also across the benefits and the objectives and all of that that you're looking to respond to as well. So diversity isn't just, say, you, you could have a building company, 
you might have then a technology company and then a car company. If all of them are after brand awareness and player appearances mm. and whatever, and then suddenly the new collective bargaining agreement comes in and you have a new naming rights partner that allows no other branding and the EBA comes in saying, sorry, no player appearances available, those sponsors are gone. Mm. Good point. Yep. All right. How do I be resilient? So is our commercial program resilient against staff turnover? So this is point number three? Yes. Resilience. Sounds like an important word. Yeah, that's right. So staff turnover and knowledge loss is a, a really common and painful occurrence for a lot of um, people within the you can't avoid industry. It. You can't avoid it. It happens. I mean, we had a, had a meeting in the UK um, last month and, and we heard the organisation we met with have never had an employee stay longer than two years. So the staff turnover there is huge, right, mm. in that one particular organisation. And multiple reasons for that, mostly wage-related, like the stuff that they that one you know manager of that department can't control. They see themselves as an organisation that brings people in, trains them up, and lets them go out often to other organisations within their industry, so they're improving the industry anyway. Um, so they, they know that. One of the big challenges for them is, how do we how do we actually keep the knowledge retention internal so that we can actually get better as an organisation, even though we have staff turning over? So because we know that there's a lot of people that carry a lot of stuff around in their head or yeah. have put together a spreadsheet yep. that only they know really how it's put together and what happens when you change this and change that. Exactly right. And you used to be like that. I used to be like that. <laughs> <laughs> and what the was reasons. the result when you left your job? Yeah, they they brought me back to um to physically hand over at a few games. Guest appearance. Yeah, guest. It's all right. Still. <laughs> so we want to protect against that because it's yep. not efficient. It's not good corporate governance. Yeah. And it doesn't provide a seamless transition, particularly for your partners. That's right. And I mean, basically, what you've outlined there is is equates to around three months of inefficiency when a new staff member comes on board. So. What we're looking at here is do you have systems um, that is resilient against that and that can show outwardly to your partners that there's consistency, continuity with partners when turnover occurs. So that's what it's about. It's not about, you know, think of the duck sitting on the water, looks all calm underneath, it's treading, you know, water rapidly. As long as your partners can see continuity, there's no sort of phone calls going in going, hey guys, um, where are we up to? Yeah, I'm new. haven't heard from you haven't, for a while. Yeah, well, no, you're ringing the partner going, oh, hey, I'm yeah. new in my job. Yeah. Um, you know, my name's Mark, nice to meet you. By the way, what was the last thing we did for you? Well, I, I was, we won't give anything away, yeah. um, but was talking to a, a client a couple of months ago who had only, that person in that role had only just started and she that person had spent the last couple of uh, weeks asking sponsors what they'd used out of their list of benefits. Yeah, it's, it's, that's and, crazy. But that person shouldn't feel ashamed about that. No, it's not because that it's person's so, fault. It's so common. Mm. Anyway. Okay, so I want to be resilient. Number four. Value-driven. So um, is our commercial program resilient against sort of team and organisation performance? So this is back on to kind of tied into to point two on the, the diversity element but um, it's also really closely tied to the signing benefits based on objectives so if you're driving a business return and it's a business and a commercial relationship and you are signing sponsors and dealing with sponsors on that professional 
level and you, you're helping them reach an audience that they can otherwise not reach. You're creating greater engagement with that audience and you're providing an opportunity then for reach to achieve commercial objective, um, then you're going to be resilient against performance because the, 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 the sponsoring a winning team or a winning organisation or a well thought of you know, industry or sport or whatever is actually not top of their pile. Well, it's not sustainable because they're not going to be successful forever even if when you come on board they are successful. No, that's right. I mean, there's, there's certain industries out there which I, I sort of see that they, they the, the major big partnership dollars fly around across multiple teams within the one sport and you, you kind of think, well, there can only be one winner here. Mm. So there's going to be six bad partnerships because of the way they're structured. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so number five, this looks big and important. Yeah, financial management. Oh, it's a scary one as well, especially for people <laughs> like me. Um, so can we track servicing costs and cash flow against individual sponsors? So, you know, by general standards, servicing costs of every sponsor traditionally has been, you know, if you can keep your servicing below 20%, you're looking all right, but that's actually coming down at a rapid rate of knots with, Why? The, with the increase of use of technology-driven value. So the use of technology has a, their sunk costs early, um, but but then they, they actually provide huge economies of scale going forward. And when you have a bigger portfolio as well, again, big, big economies of scale. So the, the servicing costs to use those technology-driven assets become less and less depending on how long you've had them or how big your portfolio is. So sometimes... Um, Costs, though, do arise and cash flow of a business hinges from the income of sponsors. And when, if you're not tracking how much it costs for you to service a sponsor and they come along and you have a, a patch of, you know, let, let's just do a, a hypothetical one partner has a precinct activation at every single match at your home ground. You have 23 home grounds in a season. Home games. Yep, home yep. games in a season. Yep. And you get a really bad run of weather. And it rains for 13 of them. Oh. And it costs you $1,000 to hire a marquee for them. Oh. And you just do that. That's that's 13000 straight up that you haven't budgeted for. That's going to go into the servicing cost of that partner. Now, if you're managing your servicing costs around that and you've got oversight over that, you can you can have some strategic conversations around how to avoid that. Um, but, but we've seen examples where... It's cost more money to service a sponsor than they're bringing in full stop, regardless of those things that you can't control about, like the weather. And that is, um, you know, that's a that's a really bad hangover from the old package deal or chairman's choice type partnerships, and often seen at the non-professional mm, yeah. sporting level or in not where it's probably industries. even more important to get it right. And and sometimes it's actually more strategically important to have that partner on board, and hmm. it might cost you money. And which in which case it's fine, but you need to know how much it's costing you. Yeah, that's 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 the important thing. We we had a a user of sponsor of um, early days just run a cost of volunteers through the system as a sponsor, so they could track what the volunteers were costing them per year. Polo shirts, free tickets, um, free sausage food, sandwich, stuff like that. And it worked out that it would have been cheaper to pay uni students $25 an hour to run their match days than to have volunteers. Yeah, right. So, But you've got to have the ability to actually – well, one, you've got to think about it and focus on it because it's important towards your organisation's health. But you've got to have the ability to track it, actually maintain it, don't you? Correct. All right. So the internals, the fourth and last pillar, had those five things looking at growth, diversity, resilience, 
value-driven and financial management. So that's been awesome. There's now 20 things that we can look at to assess the health of our sponsorship program. And if you head to sponsor.net, not only can you read all those things that Mark's spoken about um, in the last two blogs, but also in the resources drop-down menu, you'll see a link that goes to uh, a health check where you can self-assess yourself and weight against different importances, whether you think relationships elements are more important than return on investment for your unique organisation. Fill, uh, fill that out online in a survey. Probably takes 15, 20 minutes and you'll receive a one-page report back looking at the key areas that you, you score yourself really well based on the weighting and where some areas are that you might want to focus on. Exactly right. And remember, it is a self-assessment, so it's not... Anything that you need to try and manipulate to show partners? It's, oh, you just do it again if you don't like the answers. That's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> what I used to argue with my teachers. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. Are you feeling healthier? Mate, I'm, I'm about to go for a run. Are you really? No. <laughs> Friday. What do you think? All right. Thanks for joining us. See you. Australian Esports Media Group was founded in 2016 and is the driving force around Atletico, WPGI and PGTV. Tomas is a well-known figure on the event circuit, having brokered commercial agreements for World Touring Artists in association with Live Nation, AEG Entertainment and other artist management of One Direction, Jennifer Lopez, Bruno Mars and more. Locally, Tomas has spent significant time on brand partnerships for Sydney Film Festival, Melbourne Spring Fashion Week, Summer Nats, FIFA, Moomba and the Red Bull Air Race. Sponsorship within the rapidly growing esports industry is an extremely interesting topic. In 2016, esports classified a total of 148 million people as esports enthusiasts, which was up from 131 million the year before. In 2019, that figure is expected to be 215 million esports enthusiasts. Here's Tomas to take us inside the opportunities in the esports industry. Tomas Ravalid, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. Thanks for having me. We always kick off with a few easy icebreaker questions to help the audience sort of get to know what sort of person you are a little bit and, and give you some easy questions to start with. And the first is, if your house was burning down and you could only take one item with you, what would it be? Good question. My assumption is that the family's made it up by themselves. <laughs> um, they're, not really an item. they're not really an item either, are they? But... Um, it would be my passport. The nightmares of getting a new one, I've been through far too many times in different countries to know that the passport is definitely something that I want to have. <laughs> very, very good. And so the second icebreaker question is, what was your first ever job? Thankfully, my, uh, my dad is not very good at English, so I can probably slate this a little bit. Um, I was probably 11 or 12. Uh, back in Sweden, working in, in his the company he he had for many years was delivering um, products to IKEA. So this was very much of a production band. My God, I hated it. It was so monotonous. <laughs> um, and I was doing it over the summers. It, it was good money, but it, I I really felt like I gave away my soul in that space. Okay, so moving on from giving away your soul, what's been the the, the progression with your professional uh, experience now leading up to your current role? What sort of experiences led you to it? Um, I left Safe Old Sweden when I think I was 18. I headed to London and ended up in hospitality for quite some time. I was 
uh, working for Nobu, amongst others, and uh, five or six years for Christina Ong, if you're familiar with the hotel year from uh, Singapore. Yes. Great time. Um, not only did it teach me a language that I didn't really master when I arrived in, uh, in England, but it really taught me how to deal with people from all, all walks of life. So it's a great experience. After that, I somehow slipped into to sales. Um, quite frankly, I really had no idea what I walked into. Um, the beginning of that journey was, was very difficult, I think, due to a language barrier and, and not quite understanding. I guess coming from a customer server back, service background to then having to step into to asking and probing and pushing people around to get, to get what I want was, it took a little while. I think I tried to quit four or five times, but <laughs> the, the company wouldn't have the resignation and I ended up staying with these guys for, for 15 years. Um, great company. Um, the organization had partnerships or has partnerships with both FIFA and UEFA and is in the business of creating what's now known as FanZone. Uh, which is extremely exciting projects. Uh, also worked across sponsorship for most of the world's film festivals, Venice, Cannes, Berlin, even down to your much beloved Sydney film festival. So it was a really great journey. Um, after that, I, I took a few years off and tried my hand at a number of, of different projects. And only four months ago, I was, uh, introduced into this role of working with AEMG. And yeah, it's been super exciting. So give us a bit of an understanding of who AEMG are, what they do, and some of those those brands and elements within AEMG like Atletico, PGTV, and WPGI. Give the listeners a little bit of background on that. Yes, there's a whole list of acronyms that <laughs> it's hard to wrap your brain around it. Would it be a good idea that I maybe explain what actually eSport is for the listeners? I think so, and even for me, because I think I have a reasonable understanding, but I've never actually had it explained to me properly by somebody who knows what they're talking about, so I think that's a fantastic suggestion. Okay. I'm not sure if I know what I'm talking about, but I'll give it a try. Um, So eSport is, like any other sport, it's watched and consumed like most other sports that we, that we know in terms of physical sports. But the difference is, is that the spectacle or the action that's being watched is actually individuals playing video games or computer games against each other in a competitive nature. So this could be one-on-one, five-on-five, and eSport encompasses all of the different amazing game titles that developers are putting out across the world. And yeah, it's... Uh, it's something that when I was introduced to it, I, I have to be honest with you, I thought that it was a prank that was set up by my wife to have one over on me in some sort of capacity because I couldn't quite understand why or how this made sense. But here we are. It's definitely making sense, and it's, and it's a really, truly amazing space to be working in. So to sort of answer your other question, what AEMG is, so AEMG stands for Australian Esports Media Group. Um, it oversees a, a few different facets. We, we have a club, if you like, or a franchise uh, that we're very proud of called Atletico, a club in its own right, um, a brand, merchandise. The organization has a, a very reputable 
uh, coach and general manager in, in Peter Sorvalis, who's done a fantastic job. And the organization is about 40 players deep. And in addition to that, we have what's called streamers, which are less, profession, less professional in the sense that they, they're more there as, in terms of interaction with the, with the community and, and less about winning, more about sort of having fun. Uh, but we're very proud of Atletico that both the male team and the female team are currently ranked number one in Australia, and the girls haven't lost in a year and a half. So it's a, it's, it's a really great space to be in and fantastic to work with all these young people and just to sort of feed off the passion that comes from them loving their gaming. Next to that, we have PGTV. Uh, PGTV is a TV channel, if you like, through the platform known as Twitch. And what we then do is that if you can imagine sort of things like, think ESPN or Fox Sport, that type of encapsulation and ability we have in that space to, to work with brands, to deliver the action to the, to the audience and have various brands that we're working with to sort of come in and be part of that action, very similar to what you see in other sport broadcasts. And then next to that, we have the event and the tournament side of the business, which is something that we are very proud of. And I think one of the cornerstones in that space is the last acronym, which is the WPGI, which in short stands for Women's Esport League. We have done a fantastic job in trying to start to rectify the differences between male and female. Sadly, there's a huge pay gap, and this is something that we, we're doing something about. I think, I'm not saying we are the first, but we're, we are one of the organizations that are guaranteeing match fees to players, whether you win or lose. And we also have a very sizable prize pool for the first edition of this event of 10000 dollars up for grabs for for the teams competing for this so it's very very exciting times so you're the ceo and director of brand partnerships at amg sounds like you've got a lot going on in an emerging sport slash industry how do you split your time across those different elements what do you focus on regularly good Good question. I think that's a question I ask myself very often as well. How am I <laughs> best divide, dividing the time? Um, I think for, for this organization to move forward, my focus to bring revenue in inside of the, the partnership space is, is, is obviously very, very much key. But I would probably say I split the, split the time uh, 40% on, on sort of overseeing what the rest of the organization is doing and, and, and trying to keep it together the best we can. Um, and the other time it is spent on, on having conversations with businesses in the space or outside the space about, yeah, trying to bring them into it and, and, and really show them what esports can do for them. I'm guessing that some of those things that you talk about that esports can help them achieve is going to be around market reach and eyeballs and things like that because as you said before you thought it might have been a prank that your wife was playing on you but it is serious it is big uh, it can be lucrative and it's definitely growing and I think it's here to stay uh, esports can you give us a bit of a sense about the size of the market and you know how many people are engaged with it what's the reach like those sorts of things so overall the esport space is made up predominantly of millennials. We, we say generally that's kind of as low as 10 
up to 39 is probably the correct age bracket. We're sort of a core audience sitting 16 to, to 30. Now, there's a few conflicting sources of, of how big eSports is. I'm going to be conservative. Um, it's fair to say that today there's over 250 million eSports fans worldwide. Um, in Australia, the great thing about being in Australia doing this is that there's, there's a lot of other huge markets in eSports around the world that we can learn a lot from. But it's probably safe to say that the community in Australia today is uh, 1.5 million fans. And if we compare that to the 4.3 cricket fans that are out here in Australia, it's, it's, it's a sizable market already. Absolutely. So I'm guessing, well, I think I know that some of your players and you talk, uh, talked about tournaments and matches before, give us a sense of uh, about what happens at big tournaments and are they con- conducted in arenas and do people buy tickets or is it mostly just eyeballs um, logging in to watch the tournament? Give us a sense around what happens at a big tournament like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a good question. I mean, there's a significant viewer base, a larger viewer base of esports tournaments still watch this through Twitch TV. And now we have YouTube gaming coming on as a new player on the scene. So that basically allows the, the audience to watch the action from anywhere in the world, which is fantastic because it brings in enormous numbers. But this, this sport can clearly fill stadiums. We've already seen this sort of League of Legends, um, World's Masters and, and, and the ESL Cologne, where huge arenas have been filled. We're talking 60,000 people in an arena, all buying tickets. Um, how they, how if I set the scene, it's very much a filled arena with the action or the game action being shown on sort of jumbo screen, where all of the players and their coaches are in a sort of in 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 the arena on the floor. This also comes with an expert panel, uh, great commentators, and the audience literally hanging on every single twist and turn in the games with a fantastic atmosphere. It really is uh, it, it really is crazy at times to see. And I think the arena setup does something really great for especially sort of people of my age and above because it allows us to see something. Oh my God, this is actually real. This whole arena is filled. But we both know that, you know, 60,000 is only a fraction of what the audience sizes online, but I feel that when you, when you start looking at large numbers like this and, and you can't really touch and feel it, 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 it feels a little bit alien. So I think that however this came about and how this started is, has really done a great thing to catapult this to where it is today. Of course, and I think there's a lot of you know, more traditional sports, particularly um, football codes that would... Um, absolutely love to have 50, 60,000 people in their stadiums week in, week yeah. out. Like Some of those stadiums don't even hold 25,000 people. So the ability to draw a crowd certainly says that you've got a product that people want to consume. But how are those 
competitions where where people are in an arena, how are they structured and managed? Is it individual promoters seeing an opportunity and putting an event on, or or is there some sort of movement to um, governing led body competitions? You know, something like maybe like an FA or a, or a UEFA conduct competitions. So I mean, it's that's that's a good question because it very much depends on the actual game title. So to give you an example, uh, immensely uh, successful and coveted and, and loved game of League of Legends, those tournaments are handled by the developers, and that is Riot Games. Whereas, for, for another example, where Counter-Strike Go is more of an open circuit, which actually allows pretty much anyone to come in and set up a tournament um, and have qualifiers to, to lead up to this. So it, it's very varied. Um, there are a number of governing bodies, and I think we're looking at a little bit of a race of, of who is to become the ultimate peak body in this space. That's not something that I'm going to comment on of the outcome, but it's... Uh, I think the great thing about eSport overall is that it is, it is so accessible and so inclusive to anyone and I think that that to me is part of the the real charm about eSport. Yeah, I think accessible is a, is a great word, and it's one that was uh, definitely coming to mind as you were talking there. Do you think it's easier working in the sponsorship space in eSports when it's a bit more, as you said, you know, there's races for governing bodies to be the peak body. You've got you know a fragmented market in terms of you know some tournaments are controlled by the developer, and 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 other tournaments pretty much anyone can set them up. Do you think it's or that it's a bit more of a blank canvas at the moment compared to commercial programs in other industries where they might be a bit stuck in their ways or the governing body says they need to do it a a certain way and there's bureaucracy to get through and all that sort of stuff. Do you think it's a a little bit easier working in what I might describe as a blank canvas at the moment or, or not? I would say yes and no. I think the education process is a lot more lengthier to introduce a brand into the space. But once the brand is in, I feel that there's more flexibility. There are definitely rules in place already in this space that needs to be followed. Um, but yeah, if we compare to an executive bringing uh, a sponsor into the space of, uh, I'm not sure, Wimbledon tennis, I think I have probably a bit easier in that sense and less rules to to comply by, left, right, and center. So I, yeah. There's probably an argument to say that as it is now, it's slightly easier. Thomas, esports players are able to generate huge online followings and, and with that comes trust and attention from those followers. How do you go about balancing and managing individual sponsorship opportunities versus those of the team? Are there any ever any robust discussions around how they should be managed? We, I think we as an organization do a very good job of internally educating everyone involved in the organization where we're heading. Everyone is very much aligned with the vision and the goal where we are heading. But yes, you know, there is a fine balance there. Like our goal with Atletico as a team is to provide enough sponsorship and, and compensation for the players who don't have to go out and seek their own individual sponsors. You know, if it does come up, uh, which I which it has, and I expect for it to come up moving forward, 
then I think it's really just a case-by-case basis to ensure that the individual as well as all of the stakeholders are kept happy. So it's, it's a fine balance, but something that we can all we can all sort out through clear communication between all of us. You spoke before about how you think in some cases it might be a little bit harder or, or, or longer lead time to bring a brand into the space and be a commercial partner with you, but then once they're in, they, they can clearly see the benefits of a, of a partnership. What sort of objectives and goals do you think the esports industry is well-placed to help brands achieve? Extremely well positioned um, because of that flexibility that I mentioned earlier. Here you have, you know, I don't, I don't enter anyone into this space but before I know precisely what that individual or that organization seeks. To you know, I, I need to know what a good result is for this organization before we set out on the journey together. So anything from you know raising awareness of the brand. Um, finding the right position for the brand. The great thing with esports is the the community engagement is it, it's fantastic. It's 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 so nice to see how this community engages and gets behind the brands that are coming in and supporting their passion. That allows for a platform of, of great relationship building and obviously we can we can put activity and streams into the silos that's going to make up the sale in the end, so we're obviously able to help generate more sales. Um, this can lead to a better understanding of the community and we can we can find ways to qualifying leads for the businesses that we work with. Esport is a is, is a great space to build an audience and to, to really network and, and really get to know your fan base and your followers as a as a brand. Are there any benefits that you offer that are unique? To esports, i.e., that you offer that other rights holders in in other industries don't offer. Is there anything unique? Uh, you mean in terms of esports or or after the AEMG? Oh, just esports in in general. But you could you could answer that question either way. You know, as you were talking there, I was thinking to myself, I wonder if they have uh, networking opportunities at events by selling hospitality suites and i don't know if you do things like that but i was more interested in are there some great benefits um you know some uh, inventory whether it's you know i don't actually know what the answer might be but it might be tickets or or something an activation or meet the players or whatever it might be you know those things that are generally listed in an inventory is there anything unique that you have developed or the esports industry in general has developed that is really unique to the industry well, I think overall, uh, as I mentioned earlier, what's really unique is the fan engagement and, and the access to players is, is really, really good. The, the real benefits that I feel that brands working with, whether it's out, like, I'm not going to comment on what other organizations are doing in the space. I think that what we really, what we really seek to, to always have between us and the brand is that good transparency. The beautiful thing that with the space of esports is that pretty much most components that you look to insert into a sponsorship or a campaign, we can track. There's great metrics around it and that's really reassuring. I think gone are the days where you can expect any business owner of a brand from anywhere 
to simply take a punt and feel unaware of what the outcome is going to be. Um, if you can prove what happens, then it makes for a really solid relationship. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and regular listeners of the show will know that we, we always harp on the fact that if you can't show return on investment and return on objective because sponsorship is part of the marketing mix, then uh, it's going to be very hard to retain or even sign new sponsors. Do you Are there any areas that you think that esports, apart from the, the tracking and the metrics do you, and maybe access to players, are there any other areas that you think esports – the industry or even AEMG do particularly well compared to other industries? I mean, I, I, I want to come back to the to the fan engagement and how the community reacts. And, and yeah, I, I, the, the community of eSports is the reason that it's there. And it's a great community, um, extremely tech savvy and fantastic whether it's intentional or unintentional of influencing their circles around them so what you're doing here has such widespread reach that i think that's what makes it stand head and shoulder about uh, over other other areas of sponsorship or other sports and whatnot and I, yeah and i think that's only going to continue do, do you think that that's partly because there's more of a, and I'm, I am making an assumption, a little bit of a guess here, but do you think that that's because there is possibly more of a feeling of ownership of esports and it's more accessible than, say, traditional sports? Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, because because the sport is very young, um, I, I find with, with, with anyone that I communicate with inside of the community that there is immense pride but we also we also know it hasn't been around for that long, so there's not that many traditions in the same sense to to adhere to or to follow, or that is going to prevent things from happening. Um, I think it's uh, I think esports overall is, is very very liquid in the sense that it can mould to the needs of the brands that it's looking to work with, and I think that's what makes it a little bit easier to start off. It's a great segue to what's going to be my next question because that's I want to get a sense of how receptive traditional brands are and especially non-tech brands to exploring and having a conversation around sponsorship of esports because for them it's new and unknown, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And and it's I think that how the question probably how receptive that's that's down to the person who leads the conversation. Um, there's, there's nothing new about a business owner getting a phone call about something that they haven't heard about before. <laughs> I think it means that the person who's conducting the, the conversation needs to be great at, at educating about what this is going on. And, and I, I have found that generally traditional brands, once you can once you can convince the individual to, to have a look at it as, a, as an organization, perhaps not from a personal perspective, um, then despite the conversations being slightly longer and the timeline also a bit longer, once you get down to the nitty gritty, it's fairly easy for any businessman with some sort of savviness, if that's a word, to, to look at it and, and kind of realize like, okay, well, this is actually a good proposition. 
And is sponsoring esports, do you think it's more cost-effective for brands because it is in the early days? Is it more cost-effective and accessible compared to maybe traditional rights holders? Absolutely, in, the, in that sense. I mean, it's when if, if you were to, if you were to sponsor something of a mainstay tournament, DFA Cup. I go back to Wimbledon. I'm, I'm a huge fan of of, of Wimbledon and, and what they do there, and you could say Australian Open. There, there is a lot of money that goes into actually purchasing part of the prestige and making that alignment with something that is. A household name whether it's here that's not really the case as of yet we're getting there but outside of esport very few people know what tournament x means and, and the history of that so this is definitely a very cost-effective space to enter into right now you spoke before about um how highly trackable the results of a partnership can be mostly because of the, the the digital aspects that are involved. Yeah. What sort of reporting do you generally provide to sponsors? Well, so there's things like Twitch and Twitter analytics. Uh, Twitter is definitely the platform that has been used by the gaming community, and and that comes with great analytics. Um, these can be broken down into sort of geolocation, total views, number of minutes watched, impressions, and click through rates. That's kind of that's kind of the standard. There's definitely a lot of really interesting um, measures that are coming through um, that we have to kind of see. And again, it goes back to to what's going to become the, the peak body of esport. And from that, we'll obviously filter down how we best measure this. But if I compare it to other mediums that I've been working with, this is this is already stacking up to be a lot more and a lot easier for for the brands that we work with to see. Okay. I can clearly see what I'm going to be getting for my investment, and that's that's a really good place to be in. Yeah, what will be interesting, I think, is over a period of time, traditional brands who move into the esports space but still maintain a footprint and partnerships with some of their traditional uh, partners, you know, like other sports yeah. and events and things like that. Esports start start providing much more detailed analytics about how the partnership is performing, about whether those brands will then go back to their more traditional partnerships and expect the same level of servicing? Yeah, um, I'm glad I'm on this side of the fence. <laughs> so, so speaking of some of those um, new partnerships that are, that, that are being formed and, and progressing, Atletico have a unique sponsorship with BLK, and I'm guessing there's going to be some commercial sensitivity, so you can't completely uh, open the doors and tell us everything about that uh, partnership. But how did it come about? And it'd be great if you could outline, you know, as much as possible how it's structured and and what the objectives BLK are looking to achieve out of it, um, because I understand there's been some development work going on within that partnership. Yes, BLK is is a great great company overall and I think it, it became very clear that we not only do we, say, do we share the same backyard being the beautiful Gold Coast we also um, we also see the huge potential in e-sport and I don't re- if you don't mind I don't really want to comment on any details of, of the partnership we're yet to make that known to the public but we're very excited 
to have a, a good synergy with our visions and where we're looking to go. And I'm super excited to, to get started with the BLK of team and, and, and move forward. So watch the space and you'll, you'll definitely see why we are entering into this. It's going to become very clear very soon. Very good. And we do know the team at BLK and we know that they're great to work with. So we, uh, we look forward. We will st- hopefully stay posted across those developments. Where do you think the biggest opportunities are for growing sponsorship in eSport? Lifestyle brands, without a doubt. This is a lifestyle that is hard to understand if you don't move it. But if you as a brand can understand how you get into this lifestyle of eSport, there is 101 opportunities being tagged on to this. Because at the end of the day, this comes, this comes back to the ability. If you're looking to sell something to the community and the audience, the time between this gets shown to the individual before, before he or she knows that she, the, 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 the customer or the audience has an ability to click through and purchase the item. That there is literally no time in between seeing the brand and then having to go and take an action. Top of mind is great. The time in between you seeing it and doing something about it is, is not a, is not not long enough for the brand to fall off that perch of being top of mind. Mm, I think that's a really interesting comment, one that I hadn't actually thought of was how quickly people can take uh, action around sponsors' messages live while they're still engaged with the offering, the the eSport tournament potentially. But interestingly, yeah. I'm guessing that most of those people that are watching eSport are going to be doing so on their computer and they've probably got multi-screen computers. So they're not just watching it on one screen. So they can actually still be engaged with the eSport and and click through and open up an Mm. offering and explore that on a second screen without completely taking all of their attention away from the main focus, which is the tournament. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. I I think there's very few fans who are not living a life with a dual screen and precisely that. You see it, you want it. I can take action. Mm. I don't have to. I don't have to come home and, and, and plug myself in and turn my computer on. It, it's already there. And the beautiful thing with, with working with brands in that space is that the community is very happy to talk about their experience, um, and that all leads to, to greater traffic, whether that is across a site or whether it's across a topic. So. There, there are so many things that we can do here, and, and I, I foresee, and I am certain of this being one of the absolute most potent things that is going to make up a marketing mix for most brands in only a matter of, of years. Yeah, very good. And it's interesting for me because I support a couple of overseas sports teams and ones where we can't watch every game online. I'd be willing to pay five to ten dollars to watch every single game online and for me the fact that I can't do that's frustrating but the opportunities yeah. to be able to watch that game online the opportunities that that presents in exactly those sorts of examples that you just spoke about about instant response around sponsorship messaging seems like it's a a huge opportunity that other industries are missing well I mean exactly I mean like I I, I cast my my memories back to, to being young and being and still to this day obsessed about the English Premier League and 
living here in Australia makes it a bit difficult to watch these games live. It can obviously be done, but the beautiful thing about all of this and how it's set up is that I remember back in Sweden, we were we were actually able to watch um, on the Saturday. We were able to watch uh, a game live from England, and that was not something back then. This is prior the Sky era that that you could do because um, living in England at the time, if you had the choice of watching Manchester United on on the telly on the Saturday, that would mean you wouldn't go down to your local football club and support your local team, and therefore that team would suffer and, and lose revenue. Here is it, it's a beautiful thing about eSport is that you're not, you're not running the risk of doing so. Um, watching a greater team play at the same time as, as a lesser team, it's okay because you can watch them both and you can watch it, you can watch it later and, and, and the support gets given to, to these teams through you as a fan watching this, and I think that that's really fantastic because that kind of just ensures that this is just going to grow, and we're not going to have all of these clubs and organisations who pop up and, and then kind of die off because they 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 can't get the viewers. This this is just going to grow and grow and grow. Thomas, very interesting chat and some definitely what well, from the sounds of it some exciting times ahead for yourself and and the industry as a whole. If people want to get in touch with you and find out more about AEMG, Athletico, PGTV, or WPGI, what can they do? I think the best thing is just send us an email. Um, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. Ideally, I'm most likely you'll hear from myself. I'll, I'll give you a call. Uh, but if you send your inquiry through to contact at aemg.net.au, Thomas Ravalid, CEO and Director of Brand Partnerships at AEMG. Thank you so much for taking us inside sponsorship at eSports. Thank you very much for having me. That's it. You're all done. It's that easy. Great chat and thanks to Tomas again for his time. I know I certainly found that interesting. In a few areas and angles I hadn't previously considered as being important, especially those points around the immediacy of responses to sponsorship messages during the events. If you want to get in touch with Tomas, you can connect with him on LinkedIn or find out more at aemg.net.au. And of course, all those links are in the show notes at sponsorv.net. Also, just a reminder that if you want to self-assess the health of your sponsorships, Head along to the resources section at sponsorv.net and you can complete the survey and receive a one-page report. Best bit is, it's free. If you want to connect with me, then you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponsorv.net or on Twitter using the handle at sponsorv. And of course, you can connect with Mark Thompson on LinkedIn as well or email Mark using mark at sponsorv.net. Also, don't be afraid to get in contact and let us know where you are listening from anywhere in the world, and I'll be sure to give you a shout-out in the next episode, just like I did for Nick. If you aren't already, be sure to subscribe to receive all our content straight to your inbox. Simply head to any of our blogs or podcasts at sponsor.net and fill in the subscription form, and we'll deliver that content to your inbox each and every week. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs and resources, 
head to Sponserve.net or search for Sponserve on Facebook, Twitter or LinkedIn.